How are we doing this morning? So glad to be with you this morning. My name is Drew Klein. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's good to be back in the saddle. I haven't been preaching for the last couple of weeks. My wife and I were gone on vacation celebrating our 25th wedding anniversary with our kids two weeks ago. Yeah, still, we're, still, we're still doing it. And that was a sweet time. Then my, my buddy Ben Rush was with us last week, and he did a great job. And I'm just so thankful for, for Jeff Franks and for Ben for leading us in the Word in the last couple of weeks. It was a blessing. Well, we're going to continue kind of our conversation that we were in actually from last week. There's really no way, and he kind of mentioned it in his message, there's no way to, to continue what I've got to speak on today from our text and not consider what he spoke on last week sort of as part one to the topic. You might remember, remember that Ben kind of talked about the fact that there was an issue uh, in the church, uh, in the church in Antioch. This question arose of, what does it take to be saved? What do we have to do to be saved? Because again, this ministry was mainly to Gentiles. And so there was a group of people called the Circumcision Party. Now, by the way, that does not sound like a fun party to me. Don't ever go to a party called the Circumcision Party. You don't want to be there. It's a bad deal. Um, but there was this group of people called the Circumcision Party. And they were adding things to the gospel so you could be saved. They said, in order to be saved, you had to be circumcised. Not just that, but in order to be saved, you needed to live a life of a Jewish person, become a Jew in, in essence. And, and Paul and Barnabas were struggling with that, going, no, that's, that's not the gospel. That's not true. And so this kind of this scandal arose in the church and the church in Antioch said, well, why don't you guys go off to the church in Jerusalem and have a meeting and let's, let's get an answer to this. Let's determine what's going on uh, with this question. And so this would be the first of many heresies that the church has gone through. Heresy is, is something where somebody brings something alongside the truth that is not the truth. And, and it messes it up. It, it becomes uh, untrue, if you will. If you add something to the truth, it makes, makes it untrue. It's, it's, the church has continued to deal with heresies. In fact, the New Testament itself, uh, in large part, was written to uh, confront different heresies that were coming into the church. And so the writers of the New Testament kept writing these letters to the church to confront these different lies and different issues that were coming up in the church. And so this would kind of be the first of, of, of one that was an important one. What does it take to be saved? And of course, we know that the decision came down uh, from the council in Jerusalem with Pastor James. We studied uh, through the whole book of James. He was a respected pastor of the church of Jerusalem, but not just him, the elders, uh, we know that Peter spoke, we know that Paul and Barnabas spoke, but they, they kind of came down to the conclusion that no, nothing is to be added uh, to salvation, to our faith. It's just by faith, it's, it's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. That is what salvation is. It's not something that we do. And the problem is sometimes when we think if we have to do something to earn salvation, the problem that creates is later on we believe that we have to do something in order to keep that salvation. And we just keep running like a rat on a treadmill. We don't want to get in trouble. In many religions today, that is what they believe, right? Uh, the Mormons, I'm going to talk about them in a little bit, but, but um, Muslims, they, they believe they just keep this, I got to keep doing good so that I can go to heaven. That's not our faith. Our faith is that it's by grace we're saved. We're given a gift and it's through the faith that we have in Jesus and it's in Jesus alone that we're saved. And Peter said it this way in the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. We're going to kind of touch back with some of the text from last week to kind of bring us up to speed this week. Acts 15, 11 says, now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke 
on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. This beautiful moment that Peter's giving equality. We're, we're just like the Gentiles. We're just as messed up. We're just as sinful. And it'll be the same grace that we receive that they receive. It's the way to be saved. Nothing is to be added to our faith in salvation. Nothing. We, we keep reading the text. I don't know about you, but if you, you know, Ben had this text. At the end of the text, it can be a little confusing from last week. Because what happens is Pastor James says, nothing is to be added. We don't want to make this difficult for the Gentiles to come to faith in Jesus. But here's four requirements. Did you read it that way? It's sometimes it's kind of confusing. You're like, okay, nothing's to be added to, to knowing Jesus, but here's four requirements. It's kind of, what does this mean? And so we need to unpack that just a little bit more and got to get an understanding of what are, what are these additional things listed. Acts 15, 19 says this. Uh, James says, therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So he says, let's not trouble the Gentiles or make it difficult for people to be saved, but do these things, right? It's, can be confusing. What he's saying is these things, these four things are not requirements for salvation. You don't have to do these things to be saved. However, if you are saved, would you consider doing these things for unity? Would you consider doing these things for the sake of fellowship? Because now there's a group of people that are Gentiles that are very different from the Jews. And now we got to figure out a way to live together, this multicultural aspect of the early church. See, the Gentiles had no real food restrictions. They would eat food with blood or whatever the case may be. They didn't really care. And they even worshipped what they thought was a god of sex, Artemis. And so anything that, that related to these issues is kind of not a big deal to them. And yet James is saying, listen, this is not a requirement for salvation, but rather this is kind of like a product of salvation. You don't have to do these things to be saved, but if you are, you do want to have, uh, have fellowship. And so if you'll consider living this way and doing these things, or actually not doing these things, that will help us have fellowship in the church. So the first thing I want us to see in our text, not only from last week, but this week, is this huge glaring theme of unity in the church. When you read through chapter 15, verses 1 through 29, you see great, great unity in the church. It's absolutely beautiful. It's so important, unity of the church. In fact, I want to bring your attention to a few points of unity from last week, and then I'm going to bring your attention to a few points as we read in our text this week. So our text today is going to begin with this topic of unity, and sadly, it's going to end on the topic of division. But yet God is still at work and still doing work, even in our brokenness, which is a, it's a good news. Here's some points I want you to look at of unity in the text from last week, okay? Um, number one, the church at Antioch, by sending Paul and Barnabas to the church in Jerusalem, is a sign of submission, isn't it? Hey, we want to know what you think. We want to we work this out together. We're coming under your leadership. We want you to just, we want you to help us with it. That is a, a sign of unity. Submission in that way is a desire for unity in the fellowship. 
We look at Acts 15.4. It says that when Paul and Barnabas came into the church in Jerusalem, it says that the, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders. Now, they knew there was an issue. There was a reason Paul and Barnabas were there. They knew that they, some people felt this way and some people felt that way, and yet they welcomed them into the church, all those different people. There was unity already established beautifully in the church. Then we see uh, Paul and Barnabas get up and preach to this issue of salvation and that you shouldn't add anything to it. And then we see Peter get up and, and he adds his points, the fact that we will be saved by the same grace that they're, they're saved by. And then James, it comes down to James and James begins to share. So we see this unifying position of James, Paul and Barnabas, right? And Peter, they're unified in what they're saying. And there's a beautiful unity, even in the fact that they're working together for clarity of what, what is the gospel, right? Let's, let's figure this out. Do you know it's, it's easy sometimes today to kind of go like this? Well, he kind of believes this. I kind of believe that. Let's agree to disagree. You know what I mean? I, I'm sure it exists in many ways, even here with us today. That's not what we see in the text. We don't see them go, hey, you know what? There's some guys that believe you have to add something to salvation. We don't agree to disagree. Do we see that? No. We see it's a very serious issue. And so they go, well, let's figure this out. Let's come together in unity and work for the clarity of the true gospel of Jesus. Unity in the doctrine that we believe. And then lastly from uh, last week, we see this unifying uh, peace that they send a letter well, why would you send a letter, right? They're sending this letter from Jerusalem, from the Jerusalem church and the council to these churches. And they're sending them to where there's Gentiles or mainly make up the church. They're sending this letter so that there will be unity in that church. You see that? It's, it's beautiful. The unity is the biggest theme in the first part of chapter 15 and brings us to verse 22, if you'll read with me. Our text from today, 15, and we're going to go to 29. It says, then it seemed good to the apostles and to the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us, and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions. It has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Saul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay, uh, to lay on your neck to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. Now, again, kind of going back to this, this concept of unity, I want to show you a few pieces where that unity theme is continuing. The very, the very top here, verse 22 says, it seemed good to the apostles, elders, and the church. What's that sound like? Unity. It seemed good to all of us, the apostles, the elders, the whole church. We, we were in a unified position, in agreement to send these two men. 
See, they realized that if Paul and Barnabas had come back to the church in Antioch and said, hey, council went really well, they, they pretty much said what we've been saying. The church at Antioch could go, how do we know that's what they said, right? I mean, you were already saying that before you went to the council of Jerusalem. The church at Jerusalem knew they needed some witnesses. They knew they needed an account from Jerusalem. And so Jerusalem sends two of their greatest leaders, right? They send Judas. His name is Bar, uh, Bar Sabbath. By the way, Judas by this time is not a very popular name, right? Can I get another name, please? So Bar Sabbath means son of the Sabbath. It means just a, he's, a, he's, a, he's a good believer, loves the church. He's living in an honorable way. He's a leader in the Jerusalem church. And they send Barsabbas, Judas Barsabbas, and Silas. So they, they, they're a witness to not only to the meeting, but they're a witness to what happened in the meeting. They're a witness to the things that were said. They're, they're, they're give credibility and credence to this letter that's been written and the message that is in this letter. It's very important that we can kind of come alongside what Bar, Paul and Barnabas are saying and give credibility to it for the church at Antioch. This is also a really loving gesture, isn't it? I mean, for the church at Jerusalem, uh, at Antioch to go, wow, you guys sent two men to be here just to make sure that we understood this. And again, this is a sign of love, a sign of a desire for unity to be throughout the church in Jerusalem as well as in Antioch. Here's another thing that is spoken. It says, our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives. Do you see the unity in that? Do you see their desire to go, hey, you guys have got some good ones. Paul and Barnabas are great leaders. In fact, they risked their lives for the gospel of Jesus. What you, I don't know if you noticed this, but they're giving uh, respect and honor and their stamp of approval on Paul and Barnabas, not to the ones who went out from us. Do you notice that? They're making it very clear. This is who we support. This is who we're unified with. We're connected in this way. They're saying, listen, we have a oneness in mission. The same mission that Paul and Barnabas have been on throughout Galatia is our mission. And they respect them and they remind the Antioch church how incredibly blessed they are to have Paul and Barnabas. Then it comes down uh, to a very serious statement. It says, it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these. In other words, we are unified with God. This is not just our, you know, we couple of men made some decision and this is what we think. Guess what? That's not worth anything. For a couple of men to make a decision outside of God's heart and design and, and will and word, it doesn't matter. But they were unified with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit had given a sense of agreement to this decision through prayer, through fasting, through the word. So it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Again, another uh, indication that there's great, great unity and that they don't want this great burden to be on these people. They want this, this uh, salvation to be liberating, not burdensome, right? So then there's this, this last piece, these requirements. And when you first see these requirements, you can kind of go, wow, they're going to be real sticklers on some of these things. But if you look at it through the lens of unity, you see that even these requirements are unifying things, right? These requirements, again, they're not needed for salvation, but when you respect what, what James is asking, they can be a product of salvation. He says, if you will keep yourselves from these, you'll do well. What will you do well in, right? You'll do well 
as a believer connected to other believers. If you keep yourself from these things as Gentiles, you'll be able to live among the Jews. You'll have great fellowship. You'll have great connection. There'll be a unity within you otherwise that you won't know. He's saying there needs to be a deference given to one another. That's where we love one another and go, you know, I don't have to do that or I don't have to say that or I can just, because of love. You're putting the other person first. Even these requirements are James kind of saying, for the sake of fellowship, for the sake of unity, consider these things. If you want to have unity, he says, with the Jews, understand these issues, follow them and love Jesus and for the sake of unity and fellowship, do them if you will. So there's an overwhelming amount of proof of the unity in the church in Jerusalem. Overwhelming desire for uh, unity to go forward from Jerusalem and for the, the churches that are being established in Antioch and beyond. So unity is such a big, big deal when it comes to uh, our text this morning. So I got a question for you. Can we be unified with others that don't believe the truth of the word? Spiritually, can we be unified with people who don't believe the truth of the word. I don't believe that we can. I don't believe we can, can be unified with somebody who doesn't believe the truth of the word. I think that's what we see even in this text. So let me give you some examples. So for Mormons, for instance, we can't spiritually be unified with them because we don't believe the same things. Jehovah's Witness we can't spiritually be in unity with them because we don't believe the same things. I'll give you an example. I'm on a board here in Southwest Little Rock uh, called PACA, Police and Clergy Association. And we've got some great leaders that are pastors of different churches and different spiritual leaders, faith leaders in the community. And, and one of those leaders or a few of those leaders are from the Mormon church here in Southwest Little Rock. And they're great people. I mean, they, they serve Southwest Little Rock maybe better than any other group of people that I know of. They, they do a really great job. And as we began to, to meet and talk about how we're going to work for the city and do some things together, our initial thought or some of kind of what they wanted to do was be able to pray together and, and even bring our churches together for some events. And we actually did some. We did one here. We did an event here. You might remember it was a, I think it was an Easter celebration or something. It was good. But we started feeling some tension in the meeting. And the Mormon folks started going, hey, one of them literally asked me, so are we ever going to get to say anything or sing anything? And there was a tension there, right? She's saying, are we going to have unity in this spiritually? Can we be a part of this? When are we going to hold one of these at our church? And so we began to pray about it. And I just told the other leaders, I said, guys, when it comes to making the city better, when it comes to helping clean up the, the, the playground and doing everything, then let's be unified in making the city better. But spiritually, we cannot be unified. We can't be. We can't host the prayer meeting at their church. We can't allow their pastor or their uh, leader to speak because what they believe is heretical. And there's not unity unless you have a unity of doctrine and faith together. That's what we see in our text. And uh, that's been interesting. But now that we sort of clarify the lines, we still have a really wonderful relationship. And uh, I'm praying that God would reach their hearts uh, through Jesus and his true word. So there's a need for us as a church. Listen, there's a great need for us as a church, as individuals, as disciples, to know truth, 
to truly know the truth, each of us, to stand for it, to understand it, to believe it. And as we do that together, God, through his Holy Spirit, is going to give us an unbelievable unity like we see in the church here in Jerusalem. Acts 15, 30, let's continue with our text. It says, so when they were sent off, this is speaking about uh, Judas, Barsabbas, and Silas. When they were sent off, they went down to Antioch. Uh, and having gathered the, con- I'm sorry, this is speaking of uh, when they go back from Jerusalem to Antioch, they take the letter. So, so when they were sent off, uh, they went down to Antioch and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers uh, to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. There's this little interesting, this text right here is very, it's very interesting. It's it's set right in between unity and a little bit, in a little bit, we're going to look at the last piece of the text, which is division. Right in the middle of unity and division is this beautiful moment where Paul and Barnabas go back to the church at Antioch and they gather the church together. This is what has come down. This is what has been said from the Jerusalem council and they read this letter. And when they read it, I want you to look what it says. It says, and when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. You better believe they rejoiced, right? The Gentiles rejoiced. We don't have to be circumcised to follow Jesus. We don't have to become Jewish to follow Jesus. We don't add anything to faith, right? It is is by grace, through faith, in Jesus alone that we know him. They rejoice. They're encouraged. They also feel incredible love and support from the Jerusalem church. That they would send these folks, they'd send this letter They would go this extra mile so that this gospel not be a burdensome gospel, but it'd be a liberating one. Friends, you know, I think when we reflect on the grace of God, we ought to rejoice. I mean, when we truly understand what the grace of God is in our lives, we ought to rejoice. You know, I I try to not worship differently if I'm at this church or that church. I want to be respectful. I want to give deference. But I try to worship the way God calls me to worship. And there are oftentimes I'm sitting up here worshiping and sometimes I'm thinking about the message, thinking about many of you. I'm thinking about, I don't know what, lunch. I don't there's different things that go through my mind like they go through yours. But when I'm truly worshiping in a place of real beautiful worship, it's because I've laid those things to the side. And what I've done is I've been able to picture God for who he really is. Holy and perfect, righteous and wonderful. And yet, I also have a, a very good understanding of who I am. None of those things. Sinful and fallen, broken, messed up, that's me. But when I have that picture of God's goodness and his holiness, and a true understanding of my brokenness and my need for Jesus. When I try to see those and I bring them together only through Jesus, I get a true understanding of grace. And I can't help but smile. I can't help but weep. I can't help but worship 
because I don't have to go to hell. You don't have to spend eternity in hell. You don't have to live this life alone with no purpose. You don't have to grieve when someone dies because we don't grieve as those with no hope. It's different when we have a true understanding of amazing grace. We sing about it this morning. When we truly understand who God is and who we are and what Jesus has done to make a way for us to go from sinfulness to righteousness. When we truly understand that, it'll bring joy. It'll bring joy, great joy. And that's what we see in this text. We see the the Gentiles going, yes, yes, this gospel is for us. They rejoice and we too, every time we begin to consider the true meaning of grace, it should bring us joy. So when we realize what grace is in our lives, we don't only express joy, we don't only worship out of a place of joy, we should also want to know what this is about. How did it get here? Who is God? Who am I? What is my purpose in life, right? Those are the things that ought to come. Out of joy, we ought to know more. This is what Paul said, right? Paul said this in Philippians 3.8. He said, indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Paul said, I have joy in my salvation. I was changed. When when Jesus showed up to me on the road to Damascus, my life, it changed forever. But now there's something else. I want to know him more. I want to know him more, and that's exactly what we begin to see in our text. After this huge theological debate that sends Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem, and after Judas and and Silas come back and they give the report, now what are we going to do? Well, let me just show you around, you know, Antioch. No, that's, that's not what we see, right? What we see is they get back to the main thing. What's the main thing? Discipleship. It needs to always be our main thing. It is why we exist as a church. Discipleship. See, salvation is not one and done. I got saved back at a camp and I've been good ever since. Nope. Praise God for your salvation. But what does it look like now in your life? What is the next level of discipleship for you? Do you know him more? Because that's what we see in our text. Verse 32, it says, And Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. What what did they do? They went right back to the main thing. The main thing is discipleship, right? They went right back to it. This is what they do. This is who they are. This is what God has called them to do. So you got to see that Paul, uh, that Silas and Judas, after they give this kind of information on the letter and kind of give witness to that, then they, what does it say that they do? It says that they, they, were, they were prophets and they encouraged and strengthened the brothers. They're making disciples. Let's see if we can answer some questions. Let's see if we can help do the main thing, which is discipleship. And then you look over at Paul and Barnabas. 
they remain preaching and teaching, making disciples. Right in the middle of this unifying, beautiful picture of the church and where we're about to go in division between Paul and Barnabas, we see the joy of grace and the ministry of discipleship because it's the main thing. Discipleship will always lead to mission. If you're a true disciple and you are following Christ in his word and you're learning more about who he is and who he wants you to be, ultimately it will lead to you taking that gospel somewhere else, right? Discipleship always leads to mission, always. <laughs> so here's Paul, Acts 15, 36. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, hey, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Paul is absolutely crazy. Uh, he is amazing to me. Amazing, amazing man of God. And I want you to see how amazing he is in his devotion to be obedient to the call and commission of Jesus. Can I just remind you of some things? That little trip is not like, let's go see how they are down the street, right? 1,200 miles was that missionary journey. On foot, by boat, 1,200 miles. Paul goes, let's go see how they're doing. <laughs> what? You faced a demonic sorcerer, right? Yeah, that wasn't a fun moment, but then God used it and then someone was saved. And then you get to Antioch, Pisidia after going up the mountain and, and, and you're run out of town. And then you're almost stoned in Iconium and then, what? You really were stoned in Lystra and beaten so badly they thought you were dead. But Paul's a bad, bad man. <laughs> and so what does Paul do? After he's not dead, and we don't know if it's a miraculous, he, I think it probably was miraculous in his ability to go from seeming dead to not dead, he gets up and he doesn't go, whew, let's get out of here. No, Paul gets up and goes back into the city. Friends, church planning is not for the faint of heart. Stones are going to be thrown. And Paul has given us this beautiful example of Bring the stones. Until there's no breath in my lungs, I'm going to do what God's called me to do. Discipleship will always lead to mission. And here's Paul showing us what this means. You know, if there's one thing we can take away from this little piece right here. With Paul's desire to go back and strengthen the brothers throughout Galatia. If there's even just one thing we could take away from this, it's this discipleship is a process. If it was one and done, Paul would go, I'm glad we hit Galatia. Let's just keep hitting these different places. That's not what he does. And throughout Paul's ministry, he goes back to these places, strengthening the brothers, strengthening the churches, establishing churches, appointing elders. And, he, and if he can't go himself, he sends somebody else. And if he can't send somebody else, he writes a letter. Discipleship is a process, it's a journey. So the question for us this morning as disciples of Jesus, where are you on the journey? Will you ask your heart very sincerely that right now? Where am I on this journey? Have I thought it's a one and done? Do I just, I've trusted Jesus, but I don't know how much more I know about him. Or I'm not sure I could actually witness to someone and tell them who he is and why they need to believe in him. Or how do I stand on these different issues that are flying around our culture? What does the Bible say? 
Are you growing in your discipleship? Because it is a process. Where are you at in the process? Do you know him more than you did last year? Are you making him known? Are you asking questions? Are you reading? Are you committing yourself to attendance even here to learn? In your small group to learn? That is the purpose. Right? Well, pull my hair out, y'all. It's a purpose. It's why we meet. It's why, as Scott and Ellie said so wonderfully, our church is made up of small groups, not a, not a service on Sunday mornings. Our church is a group of small groups, and why do we meet? And why, do we, why are we so crazy about these small groups? Because we each need to go deeper in our discipleship, and we can't do it alone. We can't even do it if we just come on Sunday mornings. We can't do it. We need more. We need to be committed to each other. We need each other going, hey, I love you, and I want to help you go deeper. We need, we need it. We need it. So our text began with unity, and it's going to be bookended with division, Acts 15, 37. It says, now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. Remember that guy? But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to, to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. The first thing that just caught my attention in this little moment of our text is the fact that Luke even recorded it. Isn't that amazing? I mean, Luke's sitting back here and he's learning from Paul and he, all these different things and he's writing. He could have, this is not like showing Paul in a great light. This is not awesome Paul in this moment. This is sinner Paul. This is not, way to go, Barnabas the encourager. This is not Barnabas the encourager. This is Barnabas the sinner. This is Paul and Barnabas, the human beings. And, and Luke records it. And I'm so glad he does. You know why? Because I'm one of those. And I've had relational dysfunction. And I've, had mis I've made mistakes. And I've been angry with somebody and I've parted ways. And it's so good to know that there is redemption even in our brokenness. And we're going to see that. I love that Luke told this story. He could have left it out. He didn't. So here we have Barnabas the encourager wanting to encourage John Mark. You remember John Mark? John Mark was the guy that, that they, they did this trip through Cyprus. They get all the way to Perga and John Mark says, peace out. I'm done. I'm going back to Jerusalem where things are a little cushy for me and easier. This has not been that great. I'm going to just, I'm not going to go. It was a, a, it was a blow to the missionary journey, as you can imagine. Right when they're about to get into the hardest part of the journey. So Paul, you, it's really interesting to me. If you study personality types at all, man, what a study in personality types. Because Barnabas, the encourager, says, hey, listen, I know, I know John Mark made a mistake. And we all deserve, this is Barnabas, we all deserve second chances, don't we? I mean, we can all learn from this. And he's going to be great. I believe in him. Let's encourage him. I want to see him restored. Let's take him with us. Paul's like, nope. Right? Fool me once, my fault. Fool me twice. Wait, fool me once, your fault. Fool me twice, my fault. Right? That's Paul's like, other end of the spectrum. He's not going with me. And the text says there's a strong disagreement, which in the Greek uh, gives a sense of, violence. 
There's a violent disagreement. Violent, I don't know what that means. But it was so strong that their relationship, Paul and Barnabas, had been the dynamic duo. They had done amazing things. And now in this moment of humanity and brokenness and sinfulness, they break up and their relationship is never the same again. We don't really hear about Barnabas much after this. He's mentioned a couple of times of no real significance. But what we do hear of is the fact that he, he did to John Mark what he, what, he, what he does in his gifting. He encouraged John Mark. He restored John Mark. And so Barnabas and John Mark go off to Cyprus to visit those places that they'd been in Galatia. And the cool thing about God is even in our brokenness, God uses it because now where there was going to be one missionary journey, now they have two. So Barnabas and John Mark go on one, and now Paul is going to go on another one with Silas. What I love about this is that God has a way of redeeming our wreckage. He really does. He really does. Mark is encouraged and restored, and, and, and Paul connects with Luke and Timothy. And just reminds us broken relationships are so painful, so incredibly painful. And yet if we will offer the broken pieces of those relationships to the Lord, he will use them for his glory. Tremendously. Tremendously. So it says in our text that Paul was commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. You get this sense that Paul was given a blessing by the elders of the church at Antioch on his missionary journey. Well, what about Barnabas? We don't know. Maybe Barnabas left in, in a rush. Let's just go, right? I don't know. But it says that, that Paul and Silas are commended to the grace of the Lord. So we don't know about Barnabas. But one thing we do know is Paul did not stay angry with John Mark. What I love about this story is it comes full circle. You kind of see Paul in a light that's like, oh, Paul, yikes, kind of harsh, man. Give somebody a chance, and we, he doesn't give him a chance on this missionary journey. However, they do come back together. Paul says uh, in Colossians 4, mentions his friendship and mentions uh, some of the work of, of John Mark. And then 2 Timothy 4, look what it says. He's talking to Timothy. He says, do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia. Titus to Dalmatia, Luke alone is with me. Watch this. Get Mark. Bring him with you, for he is very useful to me in ministry. Wait a minute. Is this the same Paul? No. It's a Paul who's grown. It's a Paul who's gone deeper in his discipleship with Jesus. See, Paul didn't stay angry with John Mark. They connected. We don't have the whole story. But somehow that relational equity was built back. That trust was given. And, and what happens with John Mark? Right? He was restored. And in that restoration, he becomes a, a friend of Peter. And with Peter, John Mark writes the gospel of Mark and becomes this very significant character in the historical church, in the early church. So yeah, Barnabas did help restore him. And yes, Paul did forgive. And so should we. So we're going to have disagreements. 
Any relationship that you have is going to be one that is like this, right? It feels so great. Oh, we just had an issue. Oh, it's great again. We had a... That's life. That's relationship. That, that's what happens when you love people. We have to forgive, though, friends. The problem is sometimes we don't want to offer other people the grace that God has given us. I learned this huge lesson in my life. I was very wounded, and I was bitter, and I was hurt until my friend said, they're just like you. You make mistakes just like they made a mistake with you. And all of a sudden, it opened up my eyes. I'm not offering the grace to them that God is offering to me. How is that fair? It's not. We have to offer that same grace. And it might have been an older and wiser, probably was, deeper disciple Paul in Romans 12. I love this verse. You should underline this verse. You should memorize this verse to help us with every relationship that you walk in. Romans 12, 18 says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. If it's possible. As it depends upon you. Listen, if you're in a relational struggle right now, or maybe you went through a relational break and you still hold bitterness, vitriol. You hold anger, maybe hatred. You hold something in your soul, in your heart. You can't stay that way, friend. Because that venom that's in you, it's just going to hurt you. It's not going to hurt them. But what's interesting is some people think that... um, Resolution has to look like an agreement between both parties. It has to look like, well, we figured it out. We talked about the issues. They apologized to me. I apologized to them. We're good to go, right? No, that's not what Paul's saying. He's saying that even if you have been wounded, if, even if somebody absolutely hates your guts, if, there's, if you've done everything you can do, if you've reached out, if you've tried several times, meet with me. I want to I work this out. I want to reconcile. I want to apologize. I want to learn. I want to hear. If you've been in that position of reconciliation and they won't meet with you, Paul says, if it's possible, so far as it depends on you. Right? Paul didn't say, as, as long as you guys get together and make a resolution. No. You do all that you can to honor the Lord and to forgive and to work out in reconciliation. But sometimes it doesn't work. But guess what? You can still have peace. You can still have peace. The relationship that that wounded me so deeply, I don't have a relationship with those men. It saddens me. There are days that I weep over it. But I'm at peace. I'm at complete peace because I've done everything I can in my power. Everything I can in communication and reconciliation to try and understand and ask forgiveness, receive forgiveness, and give forgiveness. And now I live peaceably with them. They don't hold me captive anymore. If you're being held captive, learn that forgiveness has nothing to do with resolution. It has to do with all that you can do. So far as it depends upon you to live peaceably. A couple of things I want us to take away before we go. Number one, unity matters in the church. Doesn't it? It's so important that we're unified, that we love one another, that we, we are for one another. You see in this text in, the, in chapter 15, such a desire, time after time after time, unifying elements, unifying gestures, unifying relationships, encouragement, deference, 
The church has to be unified. There has to be unity. It matters so much. But the reality is we can only truly be unified around the truth. We need to understand what that truth is. We need to be unified around it and stand for it. And then we need to learn to love other people over ourselves. That brings unity. Give deference. Give deference. Step back. It's not about me. It's not, it doesn't have to be my way. I'll tell you what, some of our older congregation, can I just single you out for a moment and say thank you? Can I say thank you? I want to, I want to, you to look in my eyes and hear me say thank you. You have been so beautiful in your deference for us, haven't they? They allow us to do this music this loud and drums are playing. And... They've been so kind and loving and they've taken a step back and said, no, it's not necessarily my perfect cup of tea, but I love you, I love this church and I love what God's doing and I'm gonna step back. That is deference. That's loving beyond their own preference. Thank you. That brings unity, doesn't it? And so what you feel in our church is because there are people that are choosing deference instead of preference. Here's the last two things I want us to acknowledge this morning. Discipleship never stops. We're gonna go through ups and downs as a church. We're gonna go through financial struggles. We're gonna go through financial wins and victories and difficulties and staff change and all these we're going to go through it. We always have to come back to what matters most, which is what? It's discipleship. It's becoming authentic disciples. That's who we have to become. But that's not enough. Then we have to take that authentic discipleship and make authentic disciples. And lastly, even in division, even in disagreement, even in Broken relationships, even then, God can work. Even in your broken marriages that are from the past and your broken issues and friendships and things that still haunt us, if we'll just give him the pieces, God somehow takes those pieces and he does more for the gospel. He does more for us than we could have imagined somehow in his economy. Even in division and brokenness, God works and mission goes forward. The Great Commission is not about us. It's bigger than us, isn't it? We always have to be about obedience to Jesus and making him known. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord, we love you, and we are so thankful, God, to be your church. So thankful to be brothers and sisters. I, I love these wonderful people, Lord. I, I, I thank you for each and every one of them. God, thank you for our older congregation that has been so loving and so kind, and so wonderful. I adore every single one of them. And they have not been without questions, and they have not been without struggle. And yet, you have blessed our church because they have continued to support and bless us and help us. And there's deference going on around in many cultural aspects of our church and different things. And God just teaches to, to give more away of ourselves to welcome more people. Help us to remove obstacles, Jesus, from knowing you so that people can come to faith in you. And I pray this morning, God, that if there's one person in this room right now that doesn't know you as their Savior, that has not surrendered their life 
in faith to you. Would you move in their heart now, God? Would you move in their life? Would you move in their spirit now? Make it so that their heart beats in such a way they know they have to make a decision to trust you. And God, let that amazing grace sweep over their lives and let the joy of that grace send them on for the rest of their life as it has mine and changed me and in the process of changing me to be more like you. Lord, we love you. We surrender the broken times, the broken conversations, the broken relationships, the broken seasons. We just lay them before you and say, God, you're a healer. You're a restorer. Take these broken pieces and use them for your glory in my life and the lives of others for your gospel's sake. Somehow, God, use them the way that you do. You work all things together for good, those that love you and are called according to your purpose. We stand in that truth and we love you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Will you stand with me please this morning?